Galatians is a book written by the Apostle Paul. The churches in a province called Galatia, the cities are Lystra, Iconium, Derby, Antioch, and Syria. It's the first missionary journey where he went there. It's in Acts 13 and 14. And what has happened is Paul has stepped aside, and then there's been conflict back and forth. And he writes a letter to them to clarify what are the most important things of our faith. And one of the things that our faith journey always ends up wrestling with is we have these elements. Brad mentioned, you know, our shame, the things that we bring that are not of God, that are the dark spots of our life. We come to faith, and we want to throw them all away. And Jesus enters into our life, and we become new, and it's washed away. And then we find these little temptations of thinking, I don't ever want to go back. So we start trying to develop systems to protect ourselves. And sometimes we become very controlling and we use religious language to instead hide that we're actually wanting to substitute a new form of slavery. Faith involves mystery. We have to be willing to be uncomfortable. And then one of the things that we're going to see today as we get into the text, and one that I wish if I was able to write the New Testament as history wouldn't be there, we're going to see that the early Christian leaders, those that we'll call apostles and elders themselves, will spend about 20 to 30 years trying to figure out what do they do as a movement that's rooted in the Jewish culture and in the Jewish religion, as all of a sudden, all of these people who are non-Jews start coming to faith. And they're part of the church, they're part of the family. How do we incorporate them in? And particularly... The book of Galatians, it's crass at times, it's candid, but it's, I believe it's still by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I think at times it would be embarrassing to read. I'm going to take a little time today to kind of walk you through a little bit more of New Testament history. And as I do that, I'm going to hopefully not shake you up too much, but I, as I've been reading through the first and second chapter of Galatians, I have to kind of go back and go, okay, let me put the pieces together here. Let me try to fit the story together. Things make most sense to me when I can see the story. I, I struggle when it's just an idea. I have to have a, a story to make sense of it. And as I'm going to talk a little bit about what's happening and give you a little bit of Bible, what's happening is Paul writes Galatians. You're going to stumble onto a couple of things, or we will. One, if I could use this illustration, we're looking at these letters, Galatians, we can look a little bit at Romans, we can look back in Acts and see how does Luke record the history of it and try to piece together what's going on at this time. But it's kind of like if we were trying to figure out what's going on in somebody's life when we've been handed a stack full of emails and somebody's blotted out all of the dates. And some of them that we wish would kind of go through it chronologically aren't all there. And we're trying to piece it together knowing we must have the key ideas here, but the dates aren't all laying out together. I'll, I'll tell one story of something that this might be like, and uh, somewhat embarrassing, somewhat dated. Janet and I went to Uganda in 1993, 
And somehow we got on a couple of mailing lists, it may have been Janet or me, we got on mailing lists of organizations that would send nice things to missionaries. And every now and then we would go to the post office and I'd come out with a box of things from somebody who I had never met. And sometimes the boxes were nice things and sometimes they were like, oh, why did anyone pay for this? There was one time I picked up this box and I brought it home and we opened it up and somebody had sent us a bunch of calendars. Do you remember the days before we used to keep our calendar on our mobile phone when a lot of families would have a calendar that we had a nice photo of the month by month and in my family my mom was the keeper of the calendar and each day she had a list of everything that was going on. We got one of those. We also didn't have any TV at home. A lot of times radio in Uganda was in Luganda. Sometimes I didn't get out by a newspaper. And you guys know me well enough to know I'm curious by nature. So we had gotten this calendar, and I started going through it. In fact, I think it was Janet, one of the older kids. We started trying to figure out, who sent this to us? And we could figure out the name of every person in the family. We could figure out their kids. We could figure out the name of their dogs. We figured out what their medical issues were, because we could see names of doctors and notes about it. Oh, oh yeah, this is awful, isn't it? This is, but I didn't know who they were. As we read the New Testament, and I hope this isn't a silly illustration, but as we're going to say, okay, let's try to figure out Galatians and figure out Acts and put this narrative together, we're going to have some moments where I'm going to say, Here's the most important things. Here's the things we absolutely know. And then it gets these moments where is this a little bit not all there, if that makes any sense. And let me give you a couple of examples of this. I found a chart, if Rav could pull that up. I decided today I'm going to teach a little bit. This came out of the English Standard Version Study Bible, and I try to put all these stories together. And I hope this doesn't bore you unduly. I like to see stories also will make the big points clear. There's four times in this chart and in, in uh, Galatians or Acts where it talks about Paul going to Jerusalem. The first one, Galatians 1, 15 to 17, mentions that he goes right after his conversion. Acts tells that 9, verse 1 to 24. Paul has a story also, about three years after his conversion, he makes it down to Jerusalem, and that's with Barnabas. That's in Acts 9. Galatians 2, he mentions that 14 years after conversion, he went down and met the pillars of the church. We talked about that last week. Then we get to this point where there's a dispute in the church, and we're going to talk about that today. Some people think this dispute happens before Paul goes down to, to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem conference where it all kind of gets resolved. Some think it happens after. I lean towards a theory of this must, must happen before because surely they would have had it all sorted out. But what I want you to see through this is that we, if you try to put dates on this, there's about a 20 to 30 period of time where there's this brewing tension, and at moments it looks like it's resolved, and in its moments they're back and forth.
Here's a little bit of what's going on from the book of Acts. And I'm going to try to give you a brief summaries and hope you guys will read this. And this will be something you're familiar with. Luke writes by the power of the Holy Spirit, the history of the church. And in Acts chapter 8, he talks about a conversion of an Ethiopian eunuch. It's the first time that we're going to see somebody coming to faith who doesn't have this pure Jewish heritage. And he's a eunuch, so he's been dismembered. He doesn't fit what would be seen as this is how the Jews are supposed to be. Acts chapter 9, Paul's converted, and the story is he's going to go to the Gentiles, but nobody really is. Then Acts chapter 10, there's a man named Cornelius, who's a Roman soldier, a God-fearer, Greek speaker, and he, he's been exploring the Jewish faith, and he has a vision. Peter has a vision. The two meet up. Cornelius was converted, becomes a, a follower of Jesus. But Peter himself, in the very early stages of Acts, is starting to wrestle with this things that he had grown up saying, these are unclean things, and God's saying, take and eat, we've got a new life coming. And God is accepting things which the Jews had said we've got to reject. Acts 11, Peter has to defend his actions to the leaders of the church, and Paul and Peter are both wrestling with these matters. What happens when people have different faiths, or different cultural heritages, excuse me? Complicated conflict is part of our human endeavor. As I get into the text today that we're going to look at, Acts chapter 2, we're going to go 14 to 21, and I'm going to try to say, how does this apply? The big thing I'm going to talk about with how we live it out is we've got to deal with complications. Especially when our cultures intersect and our cultures are different and we're seeking unity. I have one visitor from Rwanda, one, one person who's a friend of mine from Rwanda today, and I'm actually going to quote Rwandan historians. And I can't remember, like I read this in a book, but I remember many times when God gave us a season in Rwanda, and I was trying to figure out how do things speak together. And there would be an old wise Rwandan who would say, well, it's complicated. And we talk about there's no easy way to understand all of this. And it really helped me think through this because it brought me back to basic Bible ideas that all of us, when our stories are told of our walk with God, our time on this earth, how we interact with our families, how we interact with our neighbors, None of us gets to be the hero of the story. We would hope that our words and our actions are led by the majority of our life by the Spirit of God. They bring good fruit. The Spirit is in our life. But we're all going to have our failings. And the only hero of the story is Jesus himself. And we have our complications. Practical story about this that I'll, was a bit embarrassing this morning. A little before daylight, I was taking my dog for a walk. I met one of my neighbors for the first time. Those of you that have been in our home know we live in an apartment. It's really well-designed, repurposed building, but our walls are thin. It feels like I live in a tent city. And my neighbor started the conversation. I had seen her before, and she started the conversation by saying, your bedroom and my bedroom are right next to one another. Uh, some of you raised your eyebrows. Okay, so literally, I can 
She's not here. I can smell and hear most things that move between their bedroom and our bedroom. And I was thinking, oh no, what did Jan and I do wrong? And I'm guessing by some of you raising your eyebrows, if you were thinking about that, what goes on in the intimacies of our home, it can be a little bit embarrassing no matter how you cut it. We all have our imperfections. My neighbor, thankfully, I didn't intend to do this. She started saying that she was apologizing and talking about how we can communicate to one another when we're doing something embarrassing so that we can kind of stifle neighbor conflict. Saying this, as we're going to get into Acts, or now we're into Galatians 2, in a few moments, you're going to see Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James, the pillars of the church, doing stuff that's embarrassing to them. You're going to see the complications of humanity, what our cultures meet, when we're trying to figure out what are the core things of faith, how do we sort through this? Let me ask, I'm going to read Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. Can I have you stand up? I'll read that and try to preach through it and then get you out of here. I'm reading from Pullman's translation. But when Cephas came to Antioch, and I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, If you were a Jew, live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew, how can you compel Jews to live like Jews? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that no one is justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ. And not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no human being will be justified. But we of ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ in Christ and the promoter of sin. Absolutely not. If I rebuild the system I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law I have died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for me. Hey, be seated. Okay, the translation I'm reading from says Cephas. That's going to be probably the best translation, word for word, from the Greek to who is having this conflict. Most commentators think it's Peter, and there's really little debate about that. It seems that Paul is reciting a story that was known as the Galatian church is trying to figure out this mess of what do they do with all these different cultures and come to terms with the Old Testament law. Paul tells us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that Peter comes to Antioch, and after he comes, remember this, this is after Peter had had a revelation about that he was supposed to take the things that were on him. It's after he led Cornelius to Christ. 
It's when he knows in deep in his spirit how he's supposed to be dealing with the Gentiles. He comes up and there is a big public conflict. And the conflict is so severe that Paul uses language of condemnation to describe Peter's action. I think my translation said he stood condemned. I'm cautious to say, oh, Peter was about ready to lose his faith, lose his faith, lose his salvation, but this was a really big deal. A conflict you could not avoid. It seems like what was happening was Peter was initially at peace. He comes up to see what's happening with this Antioch church, provides some help. It's a place where Jews and Gentiles are meeting. It's the hub of Paul's missionary journeys. He's eating with people, enjoying life, enjoying the fellowship. And then men come from James, and I think this is Jesus' half-brother. It's the author of the book of James. And scholars will say he's, of these early leaders, he's probably the most conservative. If we can just say conservative in the nature of hanging on to his culture. And they come up. When that happens, Peter retreats into his comfort zone. He's overcome by peer pressure, and the need of approval becomes looking for cultural stability. I'll give you a couple of stories as I preach through this, hoping to say, okay, how does this work? Or have you seen things like this? A lot of times when we are going through a season where life has a lot of uncertainties or a lot of change, we start to try to cluster with people just like ourselves, and we inadvertently and then sometimes deliberately exclude others. When my family served in Uganda, our first years that were there, there was an older Southern Baptist missionary couple named Larry and Sharon Compelli. And uh, Larry and Sharon were these wise, very active, socially engaged, very hospitable people. And they had been in Uganda during some of the darkest days of political turmoil. And somehow the Southern Baptists had been able to get a home that they owned that was on the top of a hill in a very secure place. And their home, Larry and Sharon's home, became like the gathering point for whenever Americans who were in Uganda would come there for Thanksgiving on the 4th of July. Let's meet at Larry and Sharon's. And there had become this tradition that the embassy would tell people, the American community, show up at Larry and Sharon's for the Thanksgiving on the 4th of July, and then Sharon would just go on and throw a great party. I remember as Uganda was getting more stable and more and more Americans were starting to enter, it was a fun place to live, getting a phone call from a friend, and this is before we even had mobile phones in Uganda, saying, Sharon's in a mess. The embassy only invited the embassy personnel to the 4th of July person party. No other Americans know they're invited. And we've got to tell every American to come. Now, saying that, what had happened, and in some ways a bit similar to this, is when people are going through transition, when they feel uncomfortable, they start to only invite people who are absolutely like themselves. It happens a lot of times when we're just really stressed out. I was thinking about how could this look like in North Dakota, 
It'd be like saying we're going to feed everybody Lafsa, but you have to be a certified Norwegian before you can come to the fellowship. So where you're only inviting people to look in a certain way or have a certain cultural understanding. Now, we see this happening when we've got gray hair. We can think back to, okay, I remember that in junior high. That was junior high life. And if we have kids that are teenagers, we can watch them and we can see that that's happening to their life. But as we get older, sometimes we, even those of us with gray hair, do the same thing. And I would say, be really observant. I had a friend, John Osborne, that said this. If your social group is growing, if your church is growing, your community, your fellowship, whatever we want to call it, and you start to notice that there is a small group of people that tells inside jokes, or has a certain jargon, or has acronyms, and then only maybe half the people in the room know what you're talking about, that's a sign that we're starting to go down that path. And this is what's happening Peter has gone up to Antioch. He went there feeling comfortable. Theologically, he's okay with the Gentiles. And then some others come up. And they've come up with pressure from James. And Peter has taken a step back. At the church fellowship, if I could say this in North Dakota, he's only eating left so with certified Norwegians. Everybody else has to stand on the side. He withdraws because of the fear of the rest of the Jewish Christians. And I would encourage us to be very aware of the power of our social fears. Sometimes we will let bad behavior be justified, and we'll use phrases like, everyone sees it this way, I've never seen it that way before, you're the only one who feels that way, and we're speaking as a group to somebody who really has an outside perspective and needs to be. Another thing to be aware of, and I'm being real practical here, I hope in the end I'll be very thoughtful theologically. Some of us carry great moral authority. We may have status in a community, and we can make a statement or set an example, and everybody starts to follow along. Be aware when people look at you that way. We're, I'll even give it. I'm, I'm learning North Dakota. I went to a uh, meeting the first week I was here of a nonprofit that was working with disabled people. You know, with my son Timothy, I'm interested in it. And uh, I walk into a board meeting, which was an open board board meeting, but there were about a dozen people sitting around the table, and you, uh, an issue would come up. And there were a couple of individuals who would talk and talk and talk. And I'd listen to them and go, this feels like nonsense. And then there were two individuals that could give like a very short summary of the wisest way to handle the issue, and everybody agreed with them. And I have said, be aware if you're one of those individuals, and I said, is, I hope God makes you be one where you have that moral authority, where you can speak and say a few words, and you've summarized the best wisdom of the group and are moving them forward. But be cautious if you're somebody like Peter, where you start to give what you think is the best wisdom of the group, and what you're doing is you're reciting the fears of it. And you're not pulling them to their better self, you're excusing their worse self. 
Paul tells us, oh, I'll add this, stay humble, keep peers near you, and ask people near you for extra advice when things feel complicated. Don't think you've got to figure it out. Keep asking for advice. Even Barnabas was overcome by this hypocrisy. This is Paul's traveling companion. And it points out to me as I'm looking through this text, and I said, here's a couple of earthy illustrations. No matter how much we've learned, no matter how much we've lived through, no matter how gray our hair is, those of us who are by nature our encouragers were probably very vulnerable to social pressure. Barnabas, who's the pastor of the Apostle of Encouragement, follows the crowd, just trying to keep the peace. At this point, Paul publicly confronts Peter. He lets him know, hey, Peter, you have adopted something. You're trying to be convenient. You're trying to be comfortable. You're creating division within the church. And it's a blatant hypocrisy. And not only is it just unkind to people, and not only is it culturally insensitive, when you follow the path of where this takes people in their faith, it's the type of faith that Paul will use words like condemned. This is a big deal. We can easily do this type of thing, and I can think about those of us that have a bit of age, sometimes we can look at a younger generation and say, you know, they're all doing it this way, and I was thinking one of the first things that my concern about young people is the amount of screen time they have. Then I think, how many times am I on social media each day, or how many times do I fire off emails that really don't have any relevance to people's life? We can start looking at others and judging them, and then in the same way, we're making some key mistakes ourselves. And that was what was happening with Peter. All confronts him. And he does it very publicly. And then he writes about it. And we, 2,000 years later, realize well, Peter was an apostle. He saw the resurrection of the Lord. He preached a great sermon in Acts chapter 2. He led thousands of people to Christ. He led one of the first public conversions of a Gentile. And he wrote two books that we go to and read frequently. But yet, Peter made a significant blunder as a Christian leader in Antioch. It was so significant he needed to be confirmed by another apostle. We better be careful about how we lead God's church. We should. Here's a, I'm going to try to make sense of this whole situation. And Paul, from verses 21 you know, through 15 to 21, I'm going to label it Romans light. Basically, Paul will read circulate all of the complex arguments that are made in Romans in a few verses. He talks about if you were born into Judaism, you're used to hearing about the Gentiles referred to as sinners. That you think that there's something just in your special heritage, your line of birth, who your fathers were, that have made you born as a righteous person. And you look at the Gentiles as a Jew and say, well, they weren't born righteous. And even today we might say, well, I've got this special heritage, and then we look at others and say, well, those people. But Paul lets us know, if we're familiar with the Bible, 
we should quickly realize that our best human efforts in no way can ever justify ourselves. When we put ourselves next to the holiness of God and his expectations for people, none of us measure up. In a court of law, with us being having to stand before the ultimate judge with God's law as the authority laid out in detail, none of us are in compliance. We don't pass the zoning inspection on anything. We're all guilty. What it does is it says, well, what we, it comes down to is not by all the rules we can keep, not the systems, not some religious authority that we blow and follow. It comes down to belief or faith that justifies, justifies us because God is in control and we trust him. Now, the practical thing as we do this, and we'll see Paul say it, state this over and over again, is he's arguing for simple faith. We don't need to follow all the details of Old Testament law. We don't need to circumcise the Gentiles. And we ourselves will say, we know there are godly ways to live. Here's some guidance that we will give people. But we recognize our systems, our guidance, our to-do list, nobody measures up. And we start to say, well, here's good guidance, but I've got to just live simply by faith. When we start to come to terms of faith only, people start to usually raise a pragmatic argument where you're just going to fall apart. You're just going to be morally corrupt. There'll be nothing that matters. There's nothing that's solid, nothing you can depend upon, and Paul says, absolutely not. No way. Christ did not die in vain. Paul will say, I wasn't trying to build another religious system. Eugene Peterson, his translation says, I'm not tearing down a barn and then building another one. He's saying that we don't need the control of religion. Paul says, I'm not constantly doing and failing to keep this religious to-do list, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to identify myself with Christ completely. He recognizes if we want to pursue perfection, it's not about control, but about surrender. We have to desire, die to our desires, our impulses, our ego, our pride, set aside all of our agendas, and submit to what it is like to walk the path of Christ. Paul will remind us it's not important to appear righteous before others. Our good reputation really isn't that important. And if Jesus, as the Son of God, with all of God's authority, could enter into this earth and be crucified and die in a humiliating way, we too can surrender our chance. What you see of Paul that is good what you see of any of us that is good is Christ living in us. And if you're ever listening to someone who makes himself the hero of the story, he's probably, he probably, he has an issue that wouldn't fit with this. I always appreciate those older gentlemen or older women I've known who when they're being given honor in public, somehow are able to say, Mm, I don't need to tell you all the bad things I've done, but there is a better person than me out there. And they start telling stories about others who carried them along, and then they eventually say, and all of this was the act of God. 
And that's what Paul is saying. All of the status is not it. We have to live self-sacrificial lives. The glory goes to Jesus himself. And we become like him. Why is this such a big deal? You know, I told you last week with some of my personal story about being wounded by religious systems and trying to make sense of it. And I mentioned to you, and you've probably seen it, I intentionally try to avoid conflict. I intentionally try to think, how can I bring peace here? And if you had known me 30 years ago, I felt like I was cowardly if I didn't have every conflict that I saw out there. I would seek it out at times. And there's a few times in my life where I've had some conflict and I thought that was a godly one and there was no way I could deny it. I had to go through that one, but I now lean towards, oh, how can we get away from this? How do we know when it's that point where we have to say, okay, this is a sword I'm willing to die on. This is the hill where I will not retreat from. This is where I'm going to make a big deal. I'm going to have a public conflict. You're going to see on Facebook, or you're going to see the emails with the CC, or you're going to see me disagreeing with somebody in a fellowship meeting. I think it goes down to this. If we are in a point with our faith community where we are minimizing the power of Christ, if we're making human beings the heroes of the story, and we're yielding to social norms that are excluding people instead of building the family of Christ in unity, it's in those points where we've got to say, okay, I can't deny this one. We've got to have this conversation. We've got to resolve this. Because if we look to anything other than Christ to justify us, we really do make Christianity into a sham. It's just a social club that we put religious language on top of. That is my sermon for today. It's 11 o'clock. I'm going to say, have you stand and say, closing blessing, I'm going to give you a couple quick announcements that I don't think Brad said. If he did, I forgot. I'm old. But when we get done, can you quickly move the chairs back? we got to set up. We don't own this place. We rent it. And uh, I've got a little boy. I've got a 17-year-old young man at home. I still think he's a little boy, but I've got a 17-year-old man at home. He's had surgery. I need to get home and check on him. Rav needs to be here for Tabitha. We'd like to get out of here ASAP if possible. Um, next week, we're having a fellowship meal. I'm going to roast a goose. Is there anything else I need to tell people? Jana will be home Tuesday, and I'll be much more organized next week than I do today. Oh, I don't see any single parents here. But I always do this every time. This is just free advice. Every time Jana's gone for a week, like two days before she's gone, I think, this is going to be a great week. I'm not going to have to talk to my wife. I'm going to have three extra hours a day. I'm going to get a lot done. You know what? It never goes that way. I, I, the house is a mess, and I haven't been any more efficient this week. So Let's stand up. Closing blessings. I'm going to be reading from Galatians chapter 1, verse 3 to 5. May God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace 
Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God our Father planned, in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. All glory to God forever and ever.